1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, and better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 15, Eleanor of Castile, the Stony Cross Property magnate. Last time, I introduced Eleanor of Castile, the teenage Spanish princess who became the wife to the heir of the English throne. After a baptism of fire and blood in the Second Barons' War and the Ninth Crusade, she returned to England with her husband in the summer of 1274 as the Queen of England. This week, we are going to look on her time on the throne of England, and, as we will see, her role was not as overtly political as her predecessor Eleanor of Provence, but she still managed to make her presence felt. Now, forgive me for stating the obvious here, but if you haven't listened to the previous episode, then I would strongly recommend that you go back and do so, as I will be referring back to it a fair amount. In fact, go back and listen to all my previous episodes. They're all great. Upon her coronation, she and her husband were able to bask in a little bit of the glory that they had built for themselves. England was being ruled by a young, virile king, blessed by God because of his recent crusade, and married to a popular queen. It was a pretty good start. Now the thing that Eleanor is best known for in nerdy historical circles was the accruement of property. Though I didn't go into it much last time, a constant struggle for Eleanor throughout her life in England so far had been lack of funds. There were many reasons for this. The loss of most of the Angevin lands in France hit revenues hard, but expenditure on war was, if anything, increasing, causing tremendous strain on the royal purse. Another problem was the position of the Dowager Queen, Eleanor of Provence she still held much of the dower land and property that was normally allocated to the sitting queen, meaning that it was much less for Eleanor of Castile to own. Moreover, Henry III had, through his life, been forced to give away crown lands in exchange for support from family members, and so Edward was forced to take the revenues from what dower lands Eleanor had for himself, gifting the queen only what land she held in her own right, and from the erratic yield from the queen's gold, a tax of 10% on fines. While on the throne, the Dowager Queen had exploited the Queen's gold to its fullest effect, hardly aiding her own unpopularity, and so that avenue was not really open to Eleanor. So, the only way for her to earn money was to accrue more property and take revenues from that, which is exactly what she did. Indeed, this is what she was best known for. According to Walter of Giesborough, a popular saying at the time was, quote, "'The King would like to get our gold, the Queen our manners fair to hold.'" Now, this accruement was not the work of some functionary acting on her behalf. Eleanor was a woman of action, and so she took point on this. She examined every detail of each purchase, led negotiations, haggled over contracts point by point. She didn't have much money, and so she drove a hard bargain, and, for the most part, did it all herself. This did not make her particularly popular for many reasons. Firstly, and most obviously, it was disconcerting for the men of the kingdom to see a woman, much less a queen, indulging in such masculine pursuits. Queens were supposed to be patrons of art and literature and to give babies, not accrue land and haggle them to within an inch of their lives. The other reason, though, was her involvement with Jewish moneylenders. Antisemitism in England was growing every year, but the fact was that they were the principal moneylenders in the kingdom, and Eleanor needed the money. This led to furious letters from churchmen, including this from the Archbishop of Canterbury. "'For God's sake, my lady!' When you receive land or manor acquired by usury of the Jews, take heed that it is a mortal sin to take the usury, and therefore I say to you, my very dear lady before God and the court of heaven, that you cannot retain things thus acquired if you do not make amends to those who have lost them. In other ways, as much as they are worth more than the principal debt, you must return the things thus acquired to the Christians who have lost them, saving to yourself as much as the principal debt amounts to, for more the usurer cannot give you. I am telling you the lawful truth, and if anyone give you to understand anything else, he is a heretic. Now while she accomplished all of this herself, she did so with the explicit backing of the new king, who was more than happy for his wife to gain additional revenues away from traditional royal lands. His reign was to be characterised by near constant war in Wales and Scotland, and so he needed every penny he could get his hands on. For every estate that Eleanor acquired, it was one more stream of revenue that Edward could put to the use of hammering the Welsh and later the Scots. So, where were these lands that Eleanor so controversially yet skilfully acquired? Well, I could spend the rest of the podcast on this, so intricate and complex the process, but I would, you know, like you all to continue with me on this journey to the end, so I'll give you a summarised version. Now, for those of you not familiar with English counties, I've put a map in the show notes at the thequeensofenglandpodcast.com so you can follow along. Before she came to the throne, she had achieved a foothold of property in the New Forest, and she developed that throughout her reign. Once on the throne, she went on a property tour of the home counties, establishing a portfolio of estates in Bedfordshire, Oxfordshire and Northamptonshire. In 1277, she and Edward toured Norfolk, and she came away with acquisitions in the area to the north of Norwich. Not content with this, she headed west, obtaining the wardship of the young heir of rich lands in Gloucestershire and Wiltshire, and therefore control over those revenues until they came of age. This shows that she was not just obtaining lands from forfeited debt to Jewish moneylenders. She was using an array of tactics to add lands to a little property empire. By the time of her death, she held lands in practically every county of central and southern England. So, how did she do it? Well, she had a network of messengers, bailiffs and stewards who helped her both run her existing lands and keep an eye out for anyone in financial difficulty who could be compelled to sell on the cheap. She essentially ran a small government department, and though this all sounds wonderful and empowering, it very much had its dirty side, and it is this that most tarnished the Queen's reputation. Her bailiffs were not around to make nice, they were employed to aggressively squeeze every penny out of the land that they could. They were also, of course, not all scrupulously honest men, and so they made plenty on the side, inflating rents to the Queen's tenants, so that they could skim a decent profit off the top. Now, everyone made very sure that the Queen did not know about this, or at least had plausible deniability, but this story could only go so far. There is evidence in the historical record of her intervening to aid those on the verge of default, but it is not clear to the extent that these were the exception rather than the rule. So was it all worth it? Well, the facts speak for themselves. By the end of her reign, Eleanor had managed to accrue lands earning her something in the region of £2,500 a year. By far, the most significant revenue stream for her. This was a remarkable achievement, despite the cost of her reputation. These lands, on her death would later become the centrepiece of queenly Dower land for the future, so all her successors have a lot to thank her for. So, other than becoming a real estate mogul, what else was Eleanor up to? Well, a key role of a queen, just after childbirth really, was supposed to be intercession, i.e. wielding power through having a quiet way with her husband. Queens were not supposed to hold real power, but they were expected to intercede to keep the king on the straight and narrow, especially in moral matters. Eleanor had been a strong influence on Edward's life while he was a prince. The two were practically inseparable, and there is considerable evidence that she was one of, if not the, principal adviser to him. This, however, for the most part, all stopped once she became queen. Now, this is frankly a bit weird. It's not as if Edward wasn't amenable to intercession from the women in his life. Indeed, his mother, practically locked away in her abbey, seems to have had more of a political influence on him than his wife. Why was this? Well, the reason that Eleanor's modern biographers give was because she entirely rejected this role. She did not see herself as a moralising voice in her husband's head. She saw herself as above that. She was very secure in her position as Queen, and so felt able to pursue her own interests rather than attempting to gain power at the expense of the King or his advisers. In a way, the absence of requests for intercession in her case shows just how much a force of nature Eleanor was. She had a strong reputation for being a hard-nosed woman of business. A letter surviving to us from the Archbishop of Canterbury suggests that she was, far from being considered a moderating influence on Edward, was actually seen as a stern voice of pragmatism and profit. She also had a bit of a temper, something that women are never forgiven for in the sources. Women were supposed to be gentle and tender, not hard-nosed, mean and shouty. She was, though, not all harshness. Evidence suggests that she had a wicked sense of humour and liked to play practical jokes on her husband and he on her. Again, as would be expected, she was a great religious patron. Belying her reputation for being a bit tight, she was more than usually generous to charity and was an enthusiastic patron of the Dominican order. Indeed, records show that not since Matilda of Scotland way back in the early 12th century had a queen spent quite so much on religious patronage. Now, the choice of Dominicans is quite interesting. Traditionally, Dominicans received patronage from male royals, whereas women tend to favour Franciscans. So why did she choose them? Well, Dominicans were largely responsible for her education back in Spain, and they espoused a more intellectual approach to religion, which I imagine appealed more to the bookish Eleanor. So, once again, we have Eleanor acting against the grain of what was expected of her. This wasn't a big controversial choice of hers, but it is yet another example of Eleanor making a personal choice of her own agency and not surrendering meekly to convention. This is also exemplified by her lack of friendships with the clergy. In general, queens tended to keep good relationships with the bishops and archbishops of her kingdom, largely because kings were pretty bad at doing this, and so it was seen as his wife's job to defend him to his ecclesiastics, and on the flip side, for her to be a moralising influence on her husband with the aid of the clerics. While her predecessor was writing constantly to the key bishops of England, the only correspondence that we have for Eleanor to the bishops were on matters of business, of expanding her property portfolio. Next, we're going to move on to family. We talked at length last time about how devoted to one another Eleanor and Edward were, and this did not change once we were on the throne. Rarely happy unless they were together, they were that very rare example of a royal couple that remained truly monogamous through their marriage. This was due to their compatible personalities and shared interests in chivalry, literature, hunting and riding. They helped each other out when the other was in trouble, and we don't get the usual dressing down that most influential queens tend to get from their husbands once in a while. They did not run separate factions at court, and the Queen was not isolated. They ran parallel staffs, and the King was very supportive of what Eleanor was doing, and, in return, Eleanor did not try to get too involved in what he was up to. This is despite them working in such close proximity. I apologise for dwelling on this point, but to me it's just so fascinating as you just don't see it anywhere else. An oft-quoted example of the affection that they held is the so-called Easter Ransom. People were supposed to stay abstinent during the 40 days and nights of Lent, and Edward and Eleanor, being good Christians, observed this, but every year they took part in a little ritual called the Easter Ransom once Lent ended. Edward would attempt to go from his bedchamber to his wife's, but would be bodily restrained by the ladies of the court, that is, until he paid them a little ransom. This was a little ribald humour, and a wonderful bit of colour to add to the historical record. An obvious demonstration of the closeness and affection that the king and queen had for each other was the sheer number of pregnancies that Eleanor had. Now we-
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Millions of people have lost
1: weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I
1: am. But Noom worked for me. down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. to get 30, 30, you get 30, they get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com.
0: I talked a lot about children in the last show, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about them now because the queen did not stop becoming pregnant just because she now had a crown on her head. On her accession to the throne, she had already given birth eight times, but only two of them were still alive, both of them daughters. Giving birth to a male heir was vital, and so the queen continued to give birth to children. In 1274, two years after coming to the throne, she gave birth to a healthy son, who was named Alfonso after her brother, the King of Castile, and went on to have at least six other children, four of whom made it out of infancy, including, of course, as future successor to her husband, Edward. We established her reputation as a rather disinterested mother in the last show, but this did not mean that she did not provide for her children. They were well-educated, with expensive tutors, and were introduced according to young age in order for them to gain a full impression of what was expected of them. She was not a tender, loving mother, more the strict disciplinarian, but it did not mean that she did not provide for them. Now, of course, Edward I's reign is well known, especially to you fans of massively historically inaccurate films starring Mel Gibson, for his various wars in Wales and Scotland, but if you were looking forward to hearing a lot about these wars in this episode, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you. While Eleanor did indeed accompany Edward in all his campaigns across Britain, her role in the wars of her husband was pretty limited. As I've said a few times in this episode, Edward saw politics and war as his territory, and he did not seek or require the assistance of his wife in the prosecution of either. There were, though, two main areas where the Eleanor did exert power in a political sense. The first came in 1279, when her mother Joan died, leaving to her, her only daughter, the county of Poitou in northern France. Now, this was no Aquitaine or Gascony. It was a small and not particularly significant French county. But it wasn't nothing and it had been many decades since England had held land in northern France. This did lead to a bump in Eleanor's prestige level, and she was able to add it to her list of titles, not to mention its revenues to her portfolio, but in reality it added little to her political influence. The second area was in the realm of family politics, specifically around her brother Alfonso, whose rule over Castile was running into considerable difficulty. To summarise a very complicated situation, Alfonso's heir presumptive Ferdinand died in 1275. Now, Ferdinand had two sons, but the eldest was only five at this point, and so the position of heir was counterclaimed by Alfonso's young son, Sancho. Alfonso's backed his son, the French backed the other faction, as he had been married to a French princess. Given that he was already married to a Castilian and was neutral in the conflict, Edward was called upon to mediate, but his preoccupations in Wales at the time meant that he had little time to intervene. Alfonso, therefore, requested that Eleanor be empowered to act as Edward's proxy in the peace talks. Elna persuaded Edward to come down on the side of her brother, but then her brother unhelpfully died, meaning that Sancho inherited the throne thanks to his use of bigger army diplomacy. This was not an unusual use of queenly power, in fact, this is a classic in queenly intercession. Her family was in trouble, so she asked her husband for help. He considered the situation and deemed it appropriate to help her out. This is really one of the few occasions of conformity for Elna. We've talked a bit already about her bookishness, but I think it's worth dwelling on it a little more here. She surrounds herself with experts on classical texts. Indeed, her bookkeeper was hired far more for his knowledge of Aristotle than his financial wizardry. Along with the book that she commissioned in the Holy Land that we talked about last time, she also acted as patron for the Arthurian romances being written at the time, such as Gerard of Amiens' Escanso, and is believed to have contributed even to the content of the book, showing her deep knowledge and appreciation for the genre and reading in general. She was most certainly the intellectual driving force at court, Research suggests that every book in the court library can in some way be traced back to her. Her love of not just weighty chronicles and hagiographies of saints, but also lighter of fiction, means that she was responsible for the spread of a huge range of texts around the noble men and women of England, a considerable achievement. In 1284, yet another tragedy struck the king and queen, as their eldest surviving son Alfonso suddenly died at the age of ten. This was an unexpected and devastating loss for them, not least because, by all accounts, Alfonso was shaping up to be quite a promising prospect. He was bright and intelligent, and had already started to take on some royal duties alongside his father. At the age of ten, he was thought to have escaped the danger years of early childhood, but it was not meant to be. He was buried at Westminster Abbey alongside four of his other deceased siblings. Many historians have speculated how different British history might have been if Alfonso had inherited the throne instead of Edward II. Edward that time was only four months old, and so a successful succession was in great doubt. Eleanor was by now in her late forties, and so further pregnancies, let alone successful ones, seemed unlikely, let alone one that might result in a son. Edward then was their last and only hope for a peaceful succession. In 1289 and 1290, it became clear to all that Eleanor's health was failing. She spent a great amount of time visiting shrines associated with healing on her way to and from her various centres of property ownership, but to no avail. She was forced to give up her beloved hunting in February 1290 and put her affairs in order, making arrangements for her burial and bequeathments. There were three marriages at that time involving her surviving children that were expedited so that she could see them wed and be a part of the negotiations, including the ill-fated union between Edward and the new Queen of Scots, Margaret, maid of Norway. These weddings were not without their stresses, especially those of Joan and Margaret, as they bickered constantly about supposed favour being granted to the other. They both wanted the fancier and grander wedding, and pestered their ailing mother constantly. The speed of the organisations of these weddings is made clear by the fact that both the royal daughters were forced to wear second-hand dresses, as there wasn't time for new ones to be made. Eleanor's health continued to deteriorate, forcing the court to move at painfully slow speeds across the country, as Eleanor could not face even middle-length journeys without frequent rests. It would have probably been better had she left the court and retired somewhere quieter and more peaceful, but that would have meant being separated from her beloved husband, and that was not something that she was prepared to do. On 28th November 1290, Eleanor died at the age of 49, with her husband the king at her bedside. As she had died in Lincolnshire, she was taken to Lincoln, where her body was embalmed and stuffed with barley in order to preserve it while it was taken south to London. This was carried out by the local Dominican chapter, fitting given her rich patronage of the order. On the journey south, she was not placed in a coffin, but dressed in all her finery and displayed, so that onlookers could see her. This was something that normally only kings got, yet another indication of the regard that she was held in. She actually received a triple burial. Her viscera, otherwise known as her vital organs, were buried in Lincoln, her heart in Blackfriars, and the rest of her body was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. This kind of burial was very popular at this time on the continent, but it was really a passing fad she would be the only Queen of England to be buried this way. Edward took some time off in the months after Eleanor's death, retreating to a hermitage, and it is there that his most famous tribute to his wife emerged in the letter to the Abbot of Cluny. Eleanor, quote, "...whom living we dearly cherished, and whom we cannot cease to love. Now she is dead." In the coming years, though, he would find another way to make a touching tribute to his wife, in the form of the Eleanor Crosses. These were wonderfully ornate stone monuments that marked the resting places of the funeral procession that had taken Eleanor from Lincoln back to London. There were 12 in all, and they were placed in, respectively, Lincoln, Grantham, Stamford, Gillington, Northampton, Stony Stratford, Woburn, Dunstable, St Albans, Waltham, Westcheap, and Charing. The one at Charing was so famous that it actually became part of the name, which is why one of London's biggest train stations is called Charing Cross. These monuments were made of limestone and stood at around 30 metres in height in three tiers, though all of them are slightly different. The base tier in general leads up to a canopied middle tier, containing little statuettes of Eleanor, with coats of arms beneath, featuring the coats of arms of England, Castile, Leon, and Pointure, the top tier tapering to a point and topped by a cross. Three of these currently survive almost intact, the ones at Gettington, Northampton and Waltham, though a rather magnificent replica also exists outside Charing Cross, and remnants are held in many of the other sites. More information on these can be found in the show notes. Her tomb is also rather magnificent, and is regarded as one of the finest medieval tombs that survive. It is topped by a bronze effigy of the Queen resting on a pillow. She is dressed in ornate royal robes, and is surrounded by the same coats of arms found on her crosses. Why go to all this trouble? Well, love of course must have played a role, but there are also two other possibilities. One is to rehabilitate the reputation of an unpopular monarch, Using all the power and dignity available to the king, the other, somewhat diametrically opposed reason, that was meant to prepare her for entering the sainthood as a beloved queen. Though if that was his aim, it didn't go anywhere. Eleanor's death is considered a turning point in the reign of Edward I. Much like the death of Matilda of Flanders had done for William the Conqueror, Edward is supposed to have become is supposed to have become much darker and sterner after the death of his beloved wife. His actions in the latter part of his reign lacked the certain settled touch that marked his diplomatic dealings while Eleanor was alive. This was also rather new territory for England. England had not had a widower for a king since King Stephen, nearly a century and a half previously. Interestingly, the chroniclers are surprisingly silent on Eleanor's death, neither eulogizing nor sticking the knife in. Indeed, the only real eulogy we have is from the chronicler at St. Albans, who writes a surprisingly gushing tribute. Eleanor, he says, quote, surpassed all women of that time in wisdom, prudence, and beauty. Remember, beauty, then, was considered synonymous with piety. He continues, quote, Indeed, except that it would appear flattery, I would say that she was not unequal to Sybil in wisdom. A reference to the Sybils of ancient Greece who were thought to be oracles. He goes on to say, finally, quote, Her passing was tearfully mourned by not a few, for she was the pillar of all England, by sex a woman, but in spirit and virtue more like a man, As the dawn scatters the shadows of the darkness, so by the promotion of this most holy woman, the Queen, throughout England the night of the faithlessness was expelled. Anger and discord cast out. This is great stuff here. We have a standard differentiation of masculine and feminine virtues, both of which Eleanor is supposed to have embodied, and we also have this presentation of her mostly as a woman of piety and virtue, which, as we have seen, is far from the most interesting thing about her but it is all that the religious historians of the period were interested in, even the ones positive about her time as Queen. Eleanor led a pretty remarkable life. It largely played out on the road throughout, starting off in the Barons Wars and the Crusade, then leading to the itinerant life of a prolific property owner. She had an almost uniquely close and affectionate relationship with her husband, and an extraordinarily productive, if tragic, time as a mother. She travelled everywhere from Edinburgh to Acre, from Caernarvon to Rome, and left an intellectual and artistic legacy unmatched by almost any other medieval queen. She may not have been hugely popular in her own time, and has been regarded even by her greatest modern admirers as being a bit of an unpleasant woman to almost anyone but her husband, but she does deserve to be remembered as one of England's most important queens, even if most people nowadays do not know her name. Next time, we move on to look at the brief life of Edward's second wife, Margaret of France, the first time a king had remarried whilst on the throne since Henry I. It was a rather odd match, but one that did at least bring a measure of happiness to the grieving king.